Thank you so much, Robbie. And that was great to hear from Jeremy and, uh, and Jadge there. Southall is uh, just a few miles west of where I live in fairly central London. And uh, I know it well, drive through it, past it. I've got a daughter who lives in Hanwell, which is just nearby. Uh, so it's uh, very much part of uh, the multicultural city of London where I belong. And uh, yes, um, that, those statistics that uh, Jeremy gave you, we have, of course, in London a, a, a mayor of London who is a, 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 a Muslim and whose father was a bus driver and, of course, a prime minister who's a Hindu. So the country is multicultural, multi-religious in every possible way. And we really ought to have a Union Jack around here somewhere as well uh, because the United Kingdom is just as much a mission field as is anywhere else in the world, including the United States, because God's mission is everywhere to everywhere. So here we are, uh, and we're here in Birmingham, Birmingham, uh, greatest town in Alabama. I was just uh, reminding Jeremy of that uh, famous old Randy Newman song uh, of, of long ago. But there is, of course, another Birmingham back home where, where I live. And here we are. Uh, you may say, gosh, look, here, this, can you turn to page 8 and 9, and you'll see it says a reading from the Pentateuch. Well, actually, it's not, is it? No, sorry, it's actually from 1 Kings. There you go. You need to know your Bible better there, Robbie. Um, first, first Kings is in the Deuteronomic history, history, okay, not in the Pentateuch. But, you know, you say, well, hey, just a moment, another, another sermon from the Old Testament on mission? I mean, what is this? Well, would you ask that question to the Apostle Paul? After all, he never read the New Testament, did he? Neither did Jesus. Um, I used to say to students at All Nations sometimes, you know, why did you try to do what the Apostle Paul did and go out and plant churches and evangelize the world with nothing but the Old Testament? And Jesus and the Holy Spirit, of course. But the Scriptures, that's what they had. And that's what we're looking at this evening. Uh, this great chapter, 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, is the story of the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem by Solomon. Uh, it had taken him seven years to build it. And it took him 14 years to build his own house. But still, it took him seven years. He built the temple. Uh, and the day had come when he is going to dedicate it to the Lord and invite God's presence there. And in many ways, this chapter, which only got part of it there in 1 Kings 8 on, on the, in the brochure, this temple was in many ways the climax of the, all the, the reigns of the kings to this point, Saul and then David and then Solomon. It's an amazing moment. Uh, this is the building that's going to replace the tabernacle in the wilderness as it had been. It would be the place of the, the presence of the living God in the midst of his people. That's what it would speak about. It would be the place where they would meet him in worship and in prayer. It would be the place where the, the cleansing, atoning work of sacrifice would take place and the Day of Atonement every year, of course. It would also be the place where there would generate a whole outpouring of praise and worship, which we now have in some parts of the book of Psalms, which relate to Zion and the temple. And above all, above all, it would be the place where the name of God, the name Yahweh, the name of the Lord God of Israel. That's where he would put his name as, where, as the name tag on this building was the Lord's place where he would be praised, worshipped and known. So what is Solomon going to say and pray on this pretty momentous occasion, the dedication of the temple he had built? And what can we learn from what he prays about mission? And I'm not trying to suggest for one moment that Solomon was some kind of missionary. 
And I don't think he, with his marriage arrangements, he would have got past any mission board, do you? He, and I'm not suggesting that Solomon was the missionary, but no, in this prayer, he expresses a number of quite amazing truths which undergird our mission. And that's what I want us to look at in what we're reading here. And the first thing I want us to see, the first of three points I want to make is this, that he speaks about the God who keeps his promises. So let's now read the first part of the section, verses 22 to 26, uh, there on on your page. I'll just read it straight from that. Then Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him, which means what you promised him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Yahweh, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father, the God who keeps his promises. Solomon focuses there, you see, on that unique aspect of the God of Israel. In fact, that's what he says, isn't it? He says, there's no God like you, he says. You're the God of heaven and earth, and one of the ways in which there's no God like you is that you are the God who keep your promises. Uh, Like no other gods in the ancient world did, God keeps his promises. There it is in verses 23 and 24. And in a sense, that actually is is missional. Because here is the God that Solomon is saying, look, because you keep your promises, O God, there is no other God like you. You are the God of heaven and earth. Does that remind you of anything? Those words we just spoke. What did Jesus say on the Mount of Ascension? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, to Jesus. He's taken the Yahweh position there on the Mount of Ascension, saying, guys, you know who I am now. I am this Lord God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth and all his authority. Well, if there's only one God, and if he's the God of all heaven and earth, there's nowhere else to be God in. And therefore, this God of heaven and earth must be known to the ends of the earth. And that in itself is one of the drivers of mission. Here is the God who wills to be known to the ends of the earth, and he keeps his promises. Now, supposing we'd been able to get alongside Solomon after the bun fight and the the barbecue and all the sacrifices and everything else, and say, Solomon, very interested in what you were saying there in your great prayer about this God who keeps his promises. Could you tell me a bit more about that? And I imagine he would say, well, I I was talking about God keeping his promise to my father David, which is why I'm here as his son on the throne and built this temple. But he would very quickly have taken us back through a whole series of the promises of God and almost certainly would have taken us back to God's promise to Abraham, where we've been looking at over the last couple of days, you remember, especially uh, on Sunday morning, God's great promise to Abraham. And you see, by the time of Solomon, after David, Three of the big elements of God's promise to Abraham had already been fulfilled. God had promised to Abraham that he would make him a great nation. Well, that's happened now. Here's Solomon and his empire. 
God had promised to abundantly bless that people, and even David's enemies acknowledged that God was blessing them and that Yahweh their God was something pretty special. And also God had promised to give them the land and to give them security in that land. And again, because of King David, that had happened. So, in a sense, in God keeping his promise to David, which is what Solomon's talking about, is really God keeping his promise to Abraham. Because that's the kind of God he is. And we reminded ourselves, didn't we, on Sunday morning, that the bottom line of that promise to Abraham was not just that he would be a great nation, but that through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. And just let me remind you that that was what we were looking at on Sunday. That is a key covenant promise of God right there near the beginning of the Old Testament, which goes right through the Scriptures to the very book of Revelation. God will bless the nations. Why? Because he promised to. And he's the God who keeps his promises. And so that, therefore, is in a sense the the engine of God's mission and God's agenda all through history, ever since then, right through the Bible and right up to the present day. God has been keeping that promise. And this event, this recognition of people who are serving God in so many different parts of the world is simply an evidence, simply one token of that reality. That today, perhaps whatever it is, 3,000 years after Solomon, We now live in a world where, uh, although so many people have not heard yet of Jesus, and that's a terrible reality we must face, but still a third of the world's population have heard of the God of Israel and the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a world with a a multinational church and multidirectional mission and God's people going in every direction around the world. God keeps his promises. And the only thing I'd want to add to that before moving on is... What does that say to you individually and to me individually? We can think in this grand scale of God keeping his promises to Abraham and to Solomon and to David and so on. How much more then can we trust that God will keep his promise to you, to me? If God calls us to obey him, calls us into some step of faith, some step of obedience that maybe God is even speaking over the course of these days. And we say, well, can I? Should I? Will God be there? Yes. Jesus said, I will be with you to the very end of the age. That's the promise of God. And he's the God who keeps his promises. So that's the first thing I wanted to bring from this passage. The God who keeps his promise. But we need to move on and see, secondly, the outsider who seeks God's blessing. Let's read now, just before we get to there, to verses 41 to 43, which is where we're going, just a little bit in the middle, because I think it's just worth picking out here what Solomon's actually doing. So I'm now reading from verse 27. See that middle paragraph. Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? I mean, heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this little house that I've built? Solomon's very realistic. He's not expecting God was actually going to live in this building. He's the God of heaven and earth. Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Yahweh, my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be opened night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. 
that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Then will you listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. So Solomon is aware that this is not, as it were, God's house in a literal sense, like the temples of the other nations where the gods had a statue in there. But he says, nevertheless, Lord, your name is here, so when people pray to you towards this place, will you hear in heaven and answer their prayers? And then the rest of the chapter, which is missing on your uh, page there, Solomon goes on to mention a number of possible situations in which people might want to pray to God for help when there are disputes between citizens or when there's been a defeat in battle or when there's drought or famine or disease or a siege or something like that. When these things happen and people pray, Lord, please hear and answer our prayers. But then in verse 43, sorry, verse 41, can you see it there near the bottom of that page? Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, comes. Uh Uh-oh, what's going to happen now? If you didn't see what's on the rest of that page, I wonder what you might have thought would come next. As for the foreigner, oh no, we don't want them around this place, these unclean Gentiles, these foreigners. Drive them out of this place. Keep them away from your holy holies. Well, that's what we might imagine that the Israelites would have prayed, but it's not what Solomon prays. What he prays is, now let me read it. When a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. In other words, they will hear about your reputation, O God. When he comes and prays towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you. The NIV, I think, gets it a little bit better. It just says, do whatever the foreigner asks, which is the kind of easier way to say it. It's exactly what it means. Do whatever he asks, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. It's a remarkable prayer. really is quite astonishing. I remember being quite surprised when... Uh, I sort of read it, you know, some time ago, and sort of, gosh, what a, what a vision, what an open-ended sort of prayer for Solomon to pray that God would hear the prayer of the foreigner. And I wonder, did you also notice just in there, in verse 43, a little bit of a paradox around the name of God? Because Solomon talks about the temple as this house that bears your name, he says, about the temple. But then he says, I want all the peoples on the earth will know your name. One is very local, this building in Jerusalem, and the other is utterly global. It's as if Solomon almost seems to have this inkling, this, uh, this perception that God's purpose in putting his name on this one place is because God will ultimately want his name to be known and spread to every place on earth will know the name of God. It's quite a remarkable local come global expectation. But I want us to just dig in a wee bit more into what Solomon actually prays here in these verses. And I'd like us to look at three things. I'd like us to look at the assumptions that are there, the content of it, and the motivation of it. Or, to put it more simply, what Solomon seems to believe and what he actually asks for and what he really, really wants 
Let's look at all three of those. First of all, the assumptions that he builds in. See, in asking God to do this, Solomon is making some assumptions which are actually quite important from a missional point of view. He assumes, first of all, that other peoples on the earth will hear about the reputation of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They will hear about it. They will find out about it. Secondly, he assumes that they will be attracted to come. They will want to come and find out something about this God of Israel. They will come to Jerusalem. They will come to here. And thirdly, he assumes, quite remarkably, that the God of Israel will actually hear their prayers, these foreigners who don't even belong to the covenant people, and not only that God in heaven would hear these prayers, but would answer them. Now, those are quite remarkable assumptions to make when you think about it. And actually, we know that they proved to be true in the rest of the Bible story because people did hear about the God of Israel. They heard about the God of Israel right there in Jerusalem. Because we know that, a little bit like London today, but not with nine million people, that Jerusalem was a very cosmopolitan city even in Solomon's day. We hear about people who were passing through on trade. There were diplomatic embassies. There were even just tourists, like the Queen of Sheba, the mother of all tourists, who just comes to gawp uh, at, at, at what Solomon had built and everything. And so people heard and were there in Jerusalem when the temple worship was going on. So when a psalm like Psalm 96 says, Sing a new song to the Lord and declare his glory among the nations, they didn't have to go anywhere yet to do that. They were declaring the glory of God among visitors of internationals who were there in Jerusalem. People were hearing about the God of Israel. And also we know that people were being attracted to the God of Israel. There were people in the Old Testament times itself who discovered something about this God that they wanted, which was really quite amazing. One that is quite surprising to me is Ruth, in, in the book of Ruth, do you remember? Uh, now, all, the one thing you can't say about Ruth was that she was converted by the prosperity gospel, because the only thing she had ever seen of this God was, you know, whatever it is, several weddings and umpteen funerals. Her father-in-law had died, her husband had died, her brother-in-law had died. What, what, who is this God? And these people have come from a famine-ridden country. Somehow or other, that little family of Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons had somehow borne witness to the God of Israel such that Ruth comes to this incredible conviction that she says, your God will be my God, your people will be my people, I'm going with you. She's attracted to this God and she takes her journey with, with, uh, with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Or Naaman, do you remember, who comes and after a bit of huffing and puffing uh, and dipping in the, in the Jordan ends up being healed of his skin disease and then is convinced this God is a God, amazing God, he heals me. That was because of the witness of a little Israelite girl who'd been captured in war and had brushing her mistress's hair said, you know, if, if my master would just go to Israel, there's a prophet there who could heal him. And he goes and he meets the God of Yahweh and he becomes a convert. And he says to Elisha on his way back, you know, I want to take some soil from your country because I'm going to worship this God. So there were people even in Old Testament times who were attracted to the God of Israel and came to faith in him. And indeed some of the Psalms celebrate that. Here's what Psalm 86 says, for example. It says right in the middle of the Psalm that 
First of all, it echoes what we just read. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord. And all the nations you have made will come and worship before you and bring glory to your name. <laughs> you know, I sometimes wonder what was going through the minds of these Israelites when they wrote words like that and sang words like that. How could they possibly envisage all the peoples of the earth coming to worship their God? Mind you, sometimes I wonder what's going on in the minds of Christians when we sing some of the words we sing in church as well and how we have this imagination of faith as to what God is going to do. But that's what they believed. Or Psalm 22, verse 27, All the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. So they did have this understanding that not only would people hear about the God of Israel, but they would be attracted, they would come to worship him. And then when you get to the New Testament, you actually find a whole category of people who are referred to in the New Testament as, quote, God-fearers. And that means Gentiles who had been attracted to the faith of the Jews and who actually had come to belong to the synagogues in some way, sit at the back and listen to the scriptures, and had become Gentiles who were not yet necessarily converts but were attracted to this monotheistic faith of Israel with its religious purity and its morality. And they not only were attracted, but God heard and answered their prayers. Do you remember the centurion who came to Jesus? And do you remember how the leaders of Israel recommended him to Jesus and said, you need to help this man because he loves our people and he built our synagogue. He's a Roman Gentile centurion, but he's attracted to the God of Israel. Or, of course, Cornelius in the book of Acts, exactly the same thing. A devout Gentile who's attracted and God hears their prayers and answers their prayers. So you see, that's the first thing that, that, that comes through these assumptions, that God hears and people are attracted and God answers their prayers. And I just wonder how much that speaks to us today. That is that what we are experiencing? That God attracts people to himself. There's that wonderful opening verses in your service book on the very first page where Jesus said that, didn't he? I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. There is something attractive about the living God. And the stories that are coming from different parts of the world is how amazing it is uh, that Jesus is appearing to people in dreams and in visions and people are being attracted to the God they don't even hardly yet know. It's happening particularly in Islamic context. That God is drawing people to himself. And so I find it surprising one or two occasions when I've been asked the question. I remember being asked this specifically in a Q&A session. Do you think that God hears the prayers of unbelievers? <laughs> I thought, what a question. If God didn't hear the prayers of unbelievers, none of us would ever become believers in the first place. God is the God of all the earth, as we were thinking the other day, of all nations. God knows the heart of every human being knows their longings and their desires and their prayers. And so all of us at one point were those who echoed that man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and came and met with Jesus. So that's the first thing I wanted to bring here is uh, this, this assumption that's built into the prayer that, that people will come and be attracted to the God of the Scriptures. But then I wonder, do we think in some ways of our mission as being that in some way? To be those who make the living God attractive to the world around. There's a wonderful verse in Titus which puts it exactly like that. 
where Paul is speaking to Christian slaves of non-Christian masters, or as we might put it, Christian employees of unbelieving bosses. And Paul says, teach slaves, Christian slaves, to be subject to their masters, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. In other words, to live as diligent, hardworking, honest um, slaves, workers, so that in every way they may make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Wonderful word. In fact, I, I was going to say to half the congregation here tonight, why do you use cosmetics? I only use aftershave, but I know others do use other things. And presumably people use cosmetics to make themselves attractive. They hope. We hope. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is the word Paul uses there in that verse is the Greek verb from which we get cosmetics. Paul says that Christian slaves who work well can adorn the gospel, can make the gospel attractive, can make a non-Christian slave master begin to wonder what is it about this person, this God they say they worship, this Christ they keep talking about, and, and he, he's no longer dishonest, he doesn't steal, he's not, he's not one of these sort of curmudgeonly slaves like the others. What's so different? He's making the gospel, making God attractive. And I just wonder whether we think about that. This is a mission weekend, of course, and most of the time we are thinking about those whom we are sending out, rightly, to the ends of the earth. Of course we do. We support them, we love them, we pray for them, we do all those, and we've been hearing about that this evening and over the weekend. But as well as that going out, we need to ask ourselves, are we attracting people in? Is there this attractional nature, this missional magnetism of the church? that people want to come and see something of this God that we keep on talking about. Mission flows from the attractiveness of the living God of the Bible, drawing people to himself. So that's the, the assumptions that are built into his prayer. But now let's look at the content of it itself, what he actually prays for. It's no less surprising. Solomon asks God to do whatever the foreigner asks of you. Now, the Israelites knew that their God, the God Yahweh, was a God who answered prayer. In fact, that's one of the things that's specifically said about him uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, uh, where they, they say, look, this is what makes us different from the other nations, because what other nation has their gods near them as our God Yahweh is whenever we pray to him? So the Israelites knew about God answering prayer. But nowhere in the Old Testament did God ever actually promise to do whatever an Israelite asked him to do. When Jesus says that to his disciples, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, I will do, there's something fresh, there's something new, something quite surprising about that when Jesus says that. And yet here, a thousand years before Christ, Solomon asks God to do for foreigners what God had not even guaranteed to do for Israelites. It's quite remarkable, this verse. He says, God, they're going to come. They're going to pray. They're going to ask you to do stuff. Please do it. Now, it's very so open-ended that it's also very risky. Because, I mean, who's going to control the question box? You know, who, these, these are prayers that 
will be from foreigners. They won't know the right names. They won't know the right words. They haven't learned the Psalms. They've got to, they haven't done the Westminster Confession. They don't know all the stuff that we know. But never mind, God, please, when they come and pray, will you just answer their prayer? And again, I just wonder whether there's something of that for us to learn from. That we need to be welcoming people who are somehow or other seeking God and asking God for things, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, but they're coming in some sense to the God they scarcely know and asking him. And are we encouraging that and then seeking to build on that and to work with it in order to lead them to Christ? You never know what people are going to ask. I remember one time in a, a service in a church I used to be a, um, a curate at in Tunbridge. Just great to meet Larry and his wife here who were in Tunbridge while I was there as a curate. Uh, and we had a, after the communion service and people would come, people would come back to the rail to ask for prayer. And we would go along the rail as people were kneeling there and pray with them and ask for God's blessing. And one little boy had come up and I was going along the rail and he was looking terribly sad. So I knelt down and I said, so, you know, what would you like me to pray for? And he said, my hamster. And I said, what's wrong with your hamster? He said, it's dead. <laughs> Lord, you know, what do you pray for? We're not supposed to pray for the dead. Um, do you pray for a dead hamster? Well, I, obviously, I didn't, but I prayed for him, the little boy, and the Lord would help and so on. But you never know what people are going to ask for in prayer. But here is Solomon saying, Lord, please, will whatever they come, please, will you be gracious to them? This is happening in mission, more seriously, in North India. Uh, I, there's a whole movement going on in the north of India that is really surprising. A lot of it's quite under the radar where it needs to stay, actually, most of the time, at a very local uh, level. And w- one of the people who's leading it in the UP mission, as it's known, these are Indian missionaries, was telling me that what happens is these, these, these young men who are recent converts from Hinduism themselves will go out two by two, just like Jesus said, to local villages. They just walk into the village in rural India, and they get chatting with the people, they sit and have a cup of chai and so on, and they ask what's going on here, what's happening, and of course the problems come out, you know, the cattle are sick, or the well has gone dry, or something or other, uh, and then so they say, well, well, could we pray for you? And these being very religious people, as Indian people are, say, yeah, of course, please. And they say, well, our God is Jesus, we pray in the name of Jesus, is that all right? Yes, of course, pray in the name of any God you like. Um, because, you know, they're all gods. There's no problem praying to Jesus. So they pray to Jesus about these issues. Hey, guess what? Jesus answers their prayers. You know, who would have believed it? Like the book of Acts. God acts, Jesus answers prayer. And so people come to faith, and then slowly they bring them together, uh, and they teach them the Bible and the scriptures and about Jesus, and eventually bring them to baptism, and small churches grow entirely because of God's answered prayer. So that's the assumption, what lies behind, and also the content, what Solomon asked for. But what does he really, really want? And the, the, the interesting thing is here when you get there to why should God answer Solomon's prayer? It's, uh, it's one of the things that's slightly amusing sometimes in the Psalms when a psalmist will give God a little bit of prod as to why it would be in God's own best interests if God would answer the psalmist's prayer, just in case it's being selfish. There's that lovely one where, uh, where the psalmist says, you know, well, if I die, will the dust praise you? <laughs> no, so you better keep me alive. If you want me to praise you, you know, there's no point in letting me die. And what Solomon does here is he's wanting to say to God, now look, God, you see, if you will answer my prayer 
by answering the foreigner's prayer and doing what he asked, what's he going to do? Well, he's going to go and tell his family, isn't he? There's a God in Jerusalem who, who does stuff. And so they will come, and if you answer their prayers, they're going to go home and tell people. And before you know, people are going to be flocking to this God who answers prayer. See, Solomon is quite an entrepreneur, isn't he? He knows about customer service. He, 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 he realizes that, that somehow you've got a multiplication opportunity here, God. Can't you see it? If you will answer the prayers of the foreigners, then eventually your name, your reputation is going to be known to the ends of the earth. That's what he prays for. Can you see it there at the end of verse 43? He says that your name, all the peoples of the earth, may know your name. Well, is that missional or not? What, what, you know, as I said, Solomon wasn't a missionary, but he had a missionary vision of the name of God, the name of the God of Israel being known to the end of the earth. That was his motivation. And surely that still has to be our basic and fundamental motivation even today. It was in the Old Testament times too. Psalm 138 tells us, verse 2, that God has exalted his name and his word above all things. God is concerned for his name, his glory, his reputation, and his word. And so the same psalm says, may all the kings of the earth then come to praise him. That's what we want. And of course for us, what that means, that our greatest motivation is that the name of the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah of Israel, the Lord God embodied in the Lord Jesus, that he would be the one whose name is known to the ends of the earth, that he is the one to whom people are coming in prayer, that he is the one who is answering their prayers in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that people are coming to love and worship him. Isn't that our motivation? Of course it is. It has to be. And Solomon recognized it even there a thousand years before Christ. But the problem is, of course, that like ancient Israel, sometimes our attitudes and our practices don't match up when we're thinking about outsiders who are seeking God's blessing, which is our second point, as I was saying. Because Israel's attitude often to outsiders was more hostility than welcome. They didn't really live by Solomon's prayer, did they? And we know that a book like Jonah was written almost certainly to deal with that issue. Because here is Jonah, an Israelite, who goes and preaches God's judgment in Nineveh. And what happens? Nineveh repents. And then God spares his judgment. And Jonah gets angry about it. He's embarrassed because God is gracious. In fact, Jonah quotes the scriptures back at God. Would you believe it? In, in, in Jonah chapter 4. He says, yes, yeah, see there, God, I knew. That's exactly what you do. Because you're a compassionate, gracious God, aren't you, God? He says, uh, quoting Exodus chapter 34. See, I knew you're the kind of God who goes around forgiving people. And so what's the point of me being a prophet of judgment? He gets angry. He's embarrassed because of the grace of God. And that book, I think, was written to say to Israel, you know, you need to be more welcoming to the Ninevites and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and those who, though they're your enemies, God calls you to love them and to see that they are part of the nation that God wants to bless. Is it any different for us sometimes? Who are the outsiders? I can only ask that question, and you can only answer it. Who are the outsiders that are in need of your love, your welcome, in this country, in this city, uh, in this neighborhood, whatever it is? Who are those who, in one way or another, God wants to draw to himself, and yet we struggle, as it were, to see them as those whom we welcome? Maybe one way we can help ourselves to do that better is to remember that we were all outsiders once and had been brought near only by the grace of God. 
Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians? He says, you need to remember, you guys, that there was a time when you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. You were right out there, outsiders. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that, in a sense, that verse is almost an echo and a fulfillment of the prayer of Solomon, isn't it? It's God doing what Solomon prayed for, but doing it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's basically it. There's only one other point that's very brief, uh, which is that we've looked at the, the, the God who keeps his promises. We've looked at outsiders who are seeking God's blessing. But at the very end of this chapter, we see the people who need to keep God's commands. It's there in verses 60 and 61 at the end. And you see it just over the page in page 9. When Solomon has finished his prayers, he says, Let these words of mine, which I have pleaded before Yahweh, be near to Yahweh our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and of his people Israel. Verse 60, here it is again, second time round, that all the peoples of the earth may know that Yahweh is God and there is no other. That's the great missional vision. And then he says to the Israelites, So let your heart, he's talking to the people, your hearts therefore be wholly true to Yahweh our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commands as at this day. In other words, there is a life to be lived as God wants to be lived before there are things to be said that God wants to be said. And that's what I've been trying to emphasize all the way through, isn't it? Especially on, uh, on Sunday morning and evening. You have this wonderful missional vision that all the ends of the earth will come to hear and know the name of God. But there's also this very strong your hearts need to be committed to the Lord your God. There has to be an obedient people who are living in God's ways and obeying God's commands so that God can get on with the business of drawing people to himself and attracting them to come to his glory and to his worship. And so God will keep his promise. Outsiders will be seeking God's blessing because they are all around us, whether we're aware of it or not in their loneliness, their need, and their brokenness, knowing hardly where to turn, and yet seeking somehow God. The only question is, will we be what Solomon says here, true to the ways of the Lord and obeying his commands, including, of course, the last great command that Jesus gave to his disciples, to go and make disciples of all the nations. That's the challenge that comes to us this evening. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that every part of your word breathes your presence, your heart, your goal, your mission. And we thank you for these words there in Kings, the prayer of Solomon that speak to us of your longing for people to come, not just your own people who know you already, but those who come who do not yet know you that you want to draw to yourself. Help us, Lord, not to be a hindrance, not to be the elder brother, not to keep out those who, want, who are coming in but to be those who long for and welcome those who are coming to seek you. Lord, please help us to be both a church which sends and a church which attracts. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.